Well, it was Christmas Eve a number of decades ago, and a family on a small farm in Kentucky, the mother got all their kids, about five of them dressed. Their annual tradition was to go to the 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service at the church, and the church is about a mile away from their farm, and they would always walk there. And every year, she would ask her husband, is he going to go with them? And he'd always say, no. I don't believe that fairy tale of Christmas. And so they headed off to church that evening. And it began to snow. It looked like we were going to have a white Christmas. And the husband had a roaring fire going, and he was reading a book. Had, um, and it really started snowing hard. And the temperature dropped tremendously, way below freezing. And the husband, reading his book, dozed off, and he was sleeping in his chair, and all of a sudden, wham! He heard, wham, wham, wham! Something was hitting the windows of the house. Birds were flying into the window. They, they saw the light. They sensed that there was warmth there because it was really cold outside. And the husband woke up, and he's oh, man, I've got I to help these birds. They're going to freeze to death. And so he thought, what should I do? We had a bright idea. He went down to his barn, turned all the lights on, opened the doors, and tried to shoo the birds into the barn. But they weren't having any of it. They just flew off. So he went inside, he got a bunch of uh, bread, pieces of bread, and started making a trail into the barn, hoping they would uh, take the bait, literally, and go into the barn. But they didn't do it. And he tried all which way to try to get the birds to save their lives, and they wouldn't respond. He got so frustrated, he said, Dad, blame it. If only I could become a bird and communicate with them. And at that moment, he heard the muffled bells of the church sound. It was midnight. It was Christmas. And the light went on in his head. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you became one of us, a rescue operation, because we were lost. We were um, alienated from you through our sin. And we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do, no matter how good we are. None of that outweighs the infinite chasm we've created between you and us. And so you sent your son, Jesus Christ, became one of us in the flesh to do for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. That on that cross, you accomplished the once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers all of our sin, that bridges the chasm, that brings us back to atonement, at one minute with you. That's what Christmas is really all about. Over the next four weeks, Lord, may your Holy Spirit take us deeper in an understanding of just what that means for our lives. May we begin to look at life through the lens of the incarnation, because when we do, it makes all the difference in the world. And so we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, may we honor you in this class um, and uh, may we be built up over this Advent season so that when 
Christmas Day arrives, we'd have an even greater appreciation of your gift of grace in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, and, you know, we're, uh, today begins the season of Advent. You know, the Presbyterian Church, we are, we're only latecomers to celebrating Christmas. Did you realize that? Back in the colonial times, the Presbyterians really didn't, they, they didn't believe we should single out any special day because you don't really know what day Christ was born on. Easter, yes, but we're uncertain about Christmas. That was kind of an Anglican and Roman Catholic thing. It's really only after Charles Dickens that Presbyterians joined in the fun. And so we're kind of latecomers. And usually up until really the 20th century, we didn't celebrate the church year seasons, like Advent and uh, Pentecost and all that. Um, but most churches do now. And I like it. I, I affirm uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent, so I'm not out of place to say Happy New Year. Because this is the first day on the liturgical calendar of the church year. Last Sunday was the, the last Sunday of the church year, and that was Christ the King Sunday. And that's on purpose. We end the church year. What's the last thing? Christ is King. He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So Advent literally means waiting. And I always ask Christians, uh, what are we waiting for? Let me ask you, what are we waiting for? The what? Second coming of Christ. Exactly. Most times I ask that question, people say, we're waiting for Christmas. No. Christmas already happened 2,000 years ago, the first coming. We're waiting for the second coming. That's what Advent is all about. You know, we have that ascension window down in the sanctuary. Um, during Advent, when you worship in our sanctuary, I want you to, for these four weeks, rename that the second coming window. You can't really tell, is Christ coming or going. Uh, it could be a second coming window. So uh, we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. And really, Advent ought to not be four Sundays out of the church year. It ought to be a 24-7, 365 thing. We're waiting for Christ to come, we should be, all the time, looking forward to it. When will that be? I don't know. And don't you try to figure it out. People have tried to figure out, and people have done stupid things, like taking numbers in the Bible and adding and subtracting and coming up with a certain date. There was an, actually a great Reformed theologian, he's still alive, named Harold Camping. And uh, he lived in Michigan. And he was a good, solid guy, but he went off the rails about 15 years ago. And got this idea that Jesus was going to come back on August, I think it was 2012. He had the exact date. In fact, there were billboards on I-35. I drove down from Dallas to do a funeral here, and there was the billboard. Of course, that day in August came and went, and he had all these people revved up, you know, because he was such a respected theologian. And he said, well, I figured it wrong. And so he announced a new date, of course, that came and went. And he finally, finally in public confessed his sin that even, at even trying to determine the date. Jesus said, I don't even know. That's 
the Father's business. But the Bible is clear that we are to pray. I pray every day, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly. Bring this shooting match to an end and bring your kingdom in all of its fullness and glory. And if you return today or this year or in my lifetime, may you find me faithful, watchful, and expectant. So we ought to expect Christ to come. But he says, I'm going to come as a thief in the night, and you never know when that is going to be. So, um, but I thought during Advent it would be good for us to take a look and drill down in depth on the whole cardinal doctrine of the Incarnation. Listen to this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis in his book entitled, entitled Miracles. Lewis says, The central miracle attested uh, by Christmas is the Incarnation. Elsewhere, he calls the Incarnation the grand miracle. Here's another C.S. Lewis quote. In the Christmas story, God descends and reascends. He comes down, down from the height of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. Further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very uh, seabed of nature he has created. But he comes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. You know, philosophers say the philosophical question above all other questions is, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, for eons, Christians have answered that question by going to Genesis 1 and saying there's something because God spoke and brought the whole creation into being. And that was pretty much, uh, for 2,000 years, carried the freight of most people on planet Earth until the so-called Enlightenment came along. And, uh, well, even before the Enlightenment, back in the fourth century, Augustine, St. Augustine, was the first person to really hammer out a biblical doctrine of, in Latin, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. That before God spoke the creation into being, there was no material creation. And as I say, most people believe that until the 18th century Enlightenment. Um, and then they began to ridicule Augustine and say, you can't get something out of nothing, which sounds reasonable. And they actually mocked Augustine and said, you know, he was just off his rocker. It's interesting, though, we live in the 21st century, and guess what? Astrophysicists have basically turned around and said, Augustine was right. You all have heard of the Big Bang Theory. Do you really know what that means? Because of the Hubble telescope and computer mapping and other high-tech stuff that astrophysicists have at their disposal now, they have determined that the material universe did actually have a moment when it didn't exist, and then boom, that's the Big Bang. So basically, secular astrophysicists are affirming that Augustine really did get it right. And the reason I, I bring this up is because um, we need to understand that this material universe is very, very important to God. 
You know, one of my favorite poems is by James Weldon Johnson and called The Creation. And it's a great poem full of good theology except for the opening line. And it, it, it sounds wonderful, but it's bad theology. He opens the poem, uh, he wrote this in 1927. He says, and God stepped out on space and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. That sounds great, but it's bad theology. God has never been lonely. Um, why? Anybody want to take a shot at why God has never been lonely? Because of the Holy Trinity, the triune community that God has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's, you know, Christians would, the right answer to why is there something rather than nothing, the Christian answer is there's always been something. A better way to say it, there's always been someone. God, this triune personality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, that's why, have you ever wondered when Paul says uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love? Have you ever wondered why love's the greatest rather than faith? That's because one day um, faith will give way to knowledge. Right now, faith means we, I like to say the bottom line is faith is a personal relationship with Christ. But it's not complete knowledge. It, there's some, uh, you know, you don't know exactly, you don't know Christ exactly in all of his depth. And then hope, that's just faith extended into the future. Well, one day there will be no future in terms of time because one day you and I will be transported out of time into eternity. But love is the greatest because there is, love is eternal. There has always been love, not always faith, not always hope. That's why love is the greatest. So this triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity is hard to understand and grasp, but you're not going to be able to understand the Incarnation until you really understand, or at least get some semblance of understanding of the Trinity. You know, I had a friend in Richmond, Virginia, Ann and I, when I was in seminary, we helped out with a Young Life Club at Tuckahoe High School. And do you remember the music leader, Leo, uh, guitar player? And he was a Jewish guy. And uh, so one day I said to him, Leo, how did you become a Christian? And he said, well, I was in the Navy, and you know, everybody knew I was Jewish, so all these Christian sailors were trying to witness to me. But I always say to them, do I have to believe the Trinity to be a Christian? And they'd say, well, yeah, you have to. And he said, well, I'm Jewish. The Shema from Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. He said, That's, we believe God is one. I thought Christians worshiped three gods. So I couldn't buy it. And so I never accepted Christ. I said, but you're a Christian, so what happened? He said, well, one night I went to bed. I had a dream, and Jesus appeared to me in my dream and explained the Trinity to me. And I woke up the next morning and gave my life to Christ. I said, Leo, explain the Trinity to me. He says, I can't. It's gone from my mind. I just know it's real and true. And so, you know, I was preaching at Highland Park Prez last week up in Dallas, I was preaching their Chinese service. And uh, in the service, there, a lot of the congregation are working on doctorates at SMU or the Southwestern Medical School, or some are professors there. So they're a very scientific community. So I was talking a little bit about the Trinity, and I said, you know, 
none of us can fully understand how God can be three and one and one and three at the same time. But he has left clues in the creation as to how that possibly could be. And this doesn't fully explain the Trinity, but I find it interesting as an ex-scientist myself. There's a condition in a laboratory I can create. If in a vacuum with the right temperature and pressure, I can put water in there, just one substance, H2O, not three things, one substance. And with the right temperature and pressure in that vacuum, water will simultaneously coexist in all three states of being, solid, gas, and liquid, and fluxing back and forth into those things. It's called triple point. You can Google it. I'm not making this up. Um, ice, liquid water, and, and steam, all at the same time. So, but one substance, but three states of being. So that's kind of a clue. I think God left there for us to say the Trinity is, is possible. And of course, the Trinity is also a cardinal doctrine of our, our faith. But why do we need to understand the Trinity to get, to understand the, the incarnation better? Well, God is a wild materialist. You know, before he spoke and the creation came into being, there was no materiality. That's hard for us to understand because we're physical material beings. It's hard to understand how can God be, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father's Spirit, the Son was Spirit before the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit is Spirit. You know, we are not used to that. We think in physical terms. But when God speaks and the creation comes into being, he pronounced that creation good, in fact, very good. And there's no time in Scripture or elsewhere that he has ever rescinded that verdict. He is wildly in love with the material creation, with atoms and electrons and protons and trees and blue whales and cockroaches and everything. He's wildly in love with this. And so he creates you and me in his image. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that God looks like us because he's spirit and we're flesh, but it means that we have personality and he is personality. He's not, you know, the deists believe God is just a force out there. They believe the universe always existed. It's eternal. The material universe. No, no. God is person. He can, we can relate to him personally. He relates to us personally. And he is, um, is and, and he's a creator. And so he's given us the ability to create. Um, things. You know, animals don't sit around and, you know, create art and things, but human beings, we have that capacity to do that. It's part of our God-likeness. And um, so he creates us in his image, and he's wildly in love with you and me. Um, there's a heresy prevalent, very prevalent in the early church, and guess what? It's still prevalent today. It's called Gnosticism. Uh, it comes out of Greek Platonic thinking. 
And it basically says this, that what's really important is the spiritual, not the physical. In fact, I find too many Christians, when I ask them, what is existence in heaven going to be like? When you die, what happens to you? Well, I become a spirit. And heaven's going to be some kind of spiritual existence. We're going to be floating around these disembodied spirits. And, and I go, where did you get that from? Obviously, you haven't read the Bible. The Bible is a very materialistic book. Um, you know, every year as Christmas approaches, people say, we've got to get the materialism out of Christmas. I always say, no, 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 no. We need to put the materialism back into Christmas. Christmas is all about God's love for matter, so much so that he actually enters into time and space, takes on human flesh. Incarnation, carne, chili con carne. That's chili with meat, flesh. The incarnation is about God actually becoming one of us without becoming unlike himself as God. Now, I don't know how that works. Here's part of the Trinity that, you know, I just, okay, the Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. And now you have something unique happen with the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, he becomes flesh. How does, how does that work in the Trinity? I don't know. But God's got it figured out. So don't stay up at night worrying about that. Um, and I'm going to steal a little of my thunder on our last lecture. I'm going, to tell, I'm going to open your eyes to things you've probably never thought about. But just think about this. Is there any indication in Scripture that Jesus ever gives up his physical body? No. That's why you see the title of the last lecture, The Eternalness of the Incarnation. But you and I are not comfortable with um, just spiritual. We, we, we like flowers. It comforts us to know that God became human being. And he knows what it's like to live a real life in the flesh, to suffer like we do, even die a, a real death. Um, so we're comforted by flesh. There's a story about the little boy. He's about six years old, and his father puts him to bed one night and tucks him in, reads him a story. And then the father goes to bed. Ten minutes later, the kid's in the parents' bedroom. I want to sleep with you, Mommy, Dad. I want to sleep with you. And father, no, 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 son. You've got your bed. He takes him back, puts him to bed again. And ten minutes later, he's back in the parents' room. I, 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 I'm, I don't want to be alone. I, I want to sleep with you. Ah. And the father says, honey, you're not alone. God is with you. Tucks him in. Third time, he's back in there. I don't want to be by myself. Son, I've told you, God is with you. And the little boy looks at him and says, well, I'd prefer something with skin on it. <laughs> well, that's all of us. We'd prefer something with skin on it. And that's what God does on the first Christmas. The incarnation, he incarnate, takes on meat, flesh. There's a heresy in the early church uh, that said that, well, Jesus only appeared to really be human. He was just a spiritual be being, but he took on this, you know, kind of fake news appearance that he was, no, no, real flesh and blood. If, if, if you cut Jesus, he bled. If you stuck him with a pin, it hurt him. Um, he sweated. 
uh, he was a, a real human being, just like you and me, except without sin. Again, that's hard to comprehend, but Scripture clearly teaches that. And um, did Jesus catch cold? Probably did. Did he get the flu? Did he stub his toe? Ouch. But he never cussed. Um, and so he's like us in every way except without sin. And um, so, okay. Um, so let's, let's drill down on this whole idea of incarnation. It's a miracle. I mean, when you think about it, this, this was anathema to the Greeks and the Romans. You know, they had a pantheon of gods. But the idea that gods would even associate with human beings, let alone become one, was just, eh, they, they couldn't buy that. With Jews, the Bible tells us this idea of God becoming flesh was a stumbling block to them. That's only because they misread their own Bible. They got this idea of the Messiah being a human being, but not God. You know, see, who is Jesus? Let's do a little Christology here. That means a study of who Christ is. You've got God become man, fully God and fully man at the same time. Not half God, half man. A lot of people think that's what Jesus... No, no, no. 100% human, 100% deity. And I say deity rather than divinity. I hear people say, well, Jesus was a divine being. I know what you mean, but be careful. That's, that has a lot of wiggle room in it. You know, I got Ann makes a great pecan pie, and I think that pie is divine. Uh, it's not a god. I'm not going to worship it. So deity allows no wiggle room when you're talking about Christ. He's fully human, fully deity. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have a calculator that that works on. That, that's... It just doesn't work. That's one of the mysteries of the person of Christ. How can he be fully God and fully man? I mean, you know, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to the Trinity? I mean, if he's God, all those kind of questions, we can't fully comprehend an answer. But this is a, a, a belief that Christians have come to not because they sat around and thought, what would be a cool thing to think about Jesus? No, Scripture asserts that on us. That's the only reason we believe it. I mean, Jesus makes claims to be deity. He calls himself, his favorite term was the Son of Man. But he's also called the Son of God. And the same with the Trinity. A lot of people say to me, well, the Trinity, doesn't, that word doesn't appear in Scripture, so why do we believe it? Well, we believe it because even though the word's not there, the concept asserts itself on us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right from the beginning, when God, in Genesis 1, says, let us, us, the Hebrew word is plural, not let me make man in my own image, let us make, God, make man in our image. Well, who's doing the talking there? <laughs> you know, God's talking to himself as we sometimes do. Uh, but it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communicating. And so um, God creates us in his image out of love. Why did God create the universe? 
not because he was lonely. He does it simply out of unconditional love. He says, I'm just going to make billions of galaxies and trillions and trillions of stars. And do you know that the Bible says that God has named every star in the universe? That's why you see these ads around Christmas time. You can buy uh, and name a star, you know, and you send your friend a certificate that says it's some star in some nebulous galaxies. That is just arrogant. <laughs> you can't name that star. It's already been named by God. I don't know what the name is, but there are trillions of stars. All of them are named. That's how big God is. Uh, Stories told about Teddy Roosevelt, good Presbyterian, when he was president, and uh, some foreign leader who was visiting him at the White House. And Roosevelt said, it's a beautiful night, clear night, let's go out and look at the stars. And they went out, and it was a clear night, and of course they didn't have all the lights like we have today that drown out the stars. So the sky was just full of billions of stars. And Roosevelt and this guy are laying there looking, and Roosevelt turns to the other guy and says, well, now that we feel small enough, let's go back inside. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, can't, we don't even know how big the universe is. Uh, a great book to read, and it's an easy read. It's written by a Christian astrophysicist named Guillermo Gutierrez at Iowa State University. He's a, uh, it's called The Privileged Planet. If you've never read this book, you're in for a treat. In that book, he shows scientifically, he doesn't talk about God in the book hardly, or he doesn't really talk at all about that. Secular astrophysicists have come up in just the last 20 years with a principle called the anthropic principle. As they study the placement of all the stars and the galaxies, they've come to the conclusion that to move even one star in some far-off galaxy throws everything else off. And so everything seems to be fine-tuned, trillions of fine-tuning, all to support human life on one tiny planet down in a corner of the Milky Way. And so they call it the Anthropos, is Greek for human or man. So they call it the anthropic principle. Of course, then they said, well, we don't really believe that. It just looks like it was all set up. Well, <laughs> guess what? It was all, and you know, sometimes uh, you'll see a poem or a song insinuating that you and I are made of stardust. I always thought that was kind of romantic schmaltz. Gutierrez shows that all the carbon, which we have, you can't have life with that carbon. It comes from stars. It is literally stardust. And the carbon inside of you and me is not indigenous to planet Earth. It came from stars. And so all these stars and planets are fine-tuned to support this life that God has created on Earth. And the crown of his creation, Scripture says, is you and me as human beings. But, as I said earlier, we've messed up. We've turned our backs on God. I'm not going to go all into the, the fall there in Genesis 3. Um, but you and I will never understand the incarnation until we understand 
grace. We hear that word grace all the time. What does it mean? Being nice? No. Um, grace means that you and I don't get what we deserve. You know, sometimes people say to me, God's not fair. And I always say, he's not. He's not fair. Thank God that he's not fair. What does fair mean? You and I, everybody gets what they deserve. That's being fair. Well, if you and I got what we deserve, <laughs> where, would we, where would we spend eternity? Um, grace means that you and I get what we don't deserve. And that's a healed, restored relationship with the Father through nothing that we can do. If, if you think there's anything, the slightest thing you can do to heal that relationship, you don't get grace. You know, in the Reformation, they had the, the five solas in Latin. Sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. Sola fides, through faith alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, according to Scripture alone. Sola Deo, Gloria, to the glory of God alone. God is glorified when you and I realize I'm helpless. You know, the church can learn a lot from AA. AA was started by a drunk Presbyterian elder named Bill W. And another Presbyterian elder was a drunk. They got together and said, you know, we're sick of living like this. They went to the Bible. The 12 steps are just the gospel of grace. And, you know, the first one uh, is the most important. You realize you've got a problem, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix the problem. When you realize that, alcoholics will tell you, that's when you move on the road to healing. And as long as you and I think, well, you know, I belong to First Presbyterian Church. I give regularly, I'm in church every Sunday, I'm in a Bible study, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure God's looking at that and going, man, I can't wait for that person to, they qualify. Boy, I can't wait till they get to heaven with me. Um, I'll come clean with you. I would like to stand at the pearly gates and have St. Peter look at me and say, Ron, look at all you did. You were a rev. Wow. Uh, yeah, you know, look how many people you led to Christ. Whoa! Look how many sermons. Well, let's, that wasn't very good. Um, I would love, thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, sir, I deserve it. No, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Till you and I realize there's nothing we can do, then you're on the right road. Uh, so grace means God does it all. If you add even a little bit to it, that subtracts from the sovereignty of God, which means he's not sovereign. And God is sovereign. So thank God we're saved by grace. And so we've messed up our lives and we've, you know, have this cosmic chasm between us and the Lord and we can't bridge it. If you were in the sessions on Reformed Theology, I said, uh, it would be like if we went to the Grand Canyon. It's about a mile across. Who here can jump the Grand Canyon? Nobody. 
But let's say we get the best long jumper, the, the Olympic gold medal champion. He's got the best shot of anybody in the world of getting across that canyon. I think the Olympic record is something like 32 feet, seven inches or something, long jump. You know, I try it and I get out, you know, eight feet. I wind up in the bottom of the canyon. Well, here comes the Olympic champion. He's got the best shot of anybody. He's the Billy Graham of jumpers, you know. So if he's going to make it cross, anybody can do it, he can do it. Well, when I'm laying down there, pretty soon I'm going to see him go a little bit further out from where I'm laying. That's, when you realize that's your spiritual situation, then God says, now I can work with you. And of course, God then sends Christ. He becomes one of us, fully God, fully man, and on the cross, he pays the infinite sacrifice needed to cover your sin of mind. Because we can't do that. I mean, the worst thing you can say to a pastor, if a pastor asks you, are you sure of your salvation? The worst thing you can say to him is, well, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I had a guy in Dallas say that. He was an elder, wonderful guy. He was in his 80s. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer. He was I would have said the most mature Christian at Highland Park Press. And he said that to me. Because I said, are you sure? I just want to make sure, Bob, that you're, well, I just hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. Now, I knew him well. So I said, well, when did you become a Muslim? He said, I'm not a Muslim. I said, well, that's Muslim theology. It's not Christian. Muslim theology, you know, there's only two world religions. Only two. The gospel of grace and everything else. Mormonism, Hinduism, name it, it's some form of works righteousness that there's something I've got to do to climb the ladder, so to speak, stairway to heaven. Uh, Christian faith says there ain't no stairway. <laughs> you can't do it. It's God coming down not us trying to get up to him. He comes. This is a rescue mission. The incarnation is devised by God, not so that Hallmark can sell cards and we can have Black Fridays and, and boost the economy and have nice courier knives scenes and all that. It's a dad blame rescue operation to keep us out of hell. And uh, that's being blunt about it, but that's what the incarnation is. Well, how does becoming a human being, taking on flesh, accomplish that? Well, I'm responsible for my sin, and I need to pay the price for that sin. But I'm a mortal human being, finite human being. You couldn't hang me on enough crosses to cover my sin. And how, how would I know, and if I tried to atone for my own sin, how do I know when I've done enough? Um, do you know Muhammad, before he died, he said, I don't know where I'm going because I don't know if my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. Every Muslim dies in terror except those that martyr themselves. The only guarantee you can have going to um, heaven is to martyr yourself. If I was a Muslim and really believed the Muslim faith, <laughs> You'd be in trouble right now. <laughs> I kill you. 
because I don't want to risk eternity in hell. Man, I, I'm going to tell my favorite joke, and it's dated and has bad theology. Paul's heard it, but I, I love it. And, and this is, it's dated because Osama bin Laden goes to a leadership training seminar. And they're talking about you should never ask your employees to do something you're not willing to do yourself. And so he's sitting there thinking, well, gosh, I get all these people blowing themselves up and martyring. I guess I should do that. So he straps on some dynamite, walks into a building, and pop. And here's the bad theology. He winds up in heaven. And uh, he's met by George Washington. And Washington comes up to him and goes, you tried to wreck the country. I found it. And Washington slugs him. And suddenly Patrick Henry steps forward and slugs him in the stomach. And then Robert E. Lee steps forward and throws him on the ground. Then Stonewall Jackson appears, starts stomping on him. This goes on for about an hour. After an hour, Osama's laying there all beat up, bloody. And St. Peter walks by and Osama says, I thought this was heaven. And Peter says, it is. And he said, well, my Muslim theology told me that I'd be met in heaven by 70 virgins. Peter said, uh, 70 Virginians. <laughs> my family's all from Virginia, so I love that joke. Um, so this is a rescue operation. Jesus, you know, the Old Testament sacrificial system, they had to keep killing goats and sheep and bulls over and over again. It only atoned for their sin for a finite period of time. So God sends the once for all sufficient Lamb of God who's fully deity. So it's an infinite sacrifice that covers all of our sin. Um, no matter how grievous, no matter how many, no matter how deep and weighty, um, and so this is the greatest good news. Christmas is the greatest good news. But it's all miracle. How can a creator enter creation? How can the infinite God enter into time and finite time and space? Those are beyond our comprehension. But it's true. Let me close with a, a, a Frederick Buechner story and then a, a little, a Frederick Buechner quote and then a little story. Um, Beekner writes, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it. We have not taken it as, it as seriously as it demands to be taken until that happens. It really is a scandal. The idea that this pure, infinite God would stoop down and become one of us. And you know, you can't really appreciate the incarnation until you understand that what happened on the cross, you could take me outside and put me on a cross. It would hurt, but something happened to Jesus on the cross of a cosmic level. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 22, says that Christ became sin for it. The sinless lamb became sin. What does that mean? I invented a word to explain what that means. Here's the word. You can write it down. Somehow, on the cross, Jesus 
sucked in all of the sin of the entire universe, took it upon himself, our substitute, hung in our place, because we can't do it. And that's all of grace. Stories told as God the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit meet to send Jesus off to earth, the incarnation, take on flesh. And God the Father lays out the plan. And Jesus says, okay, I'm willing to do this. And the heavenly hosts are gathered around listening to all this. And Jesus heads for earth. You know, here, we talk about the virgin birth. That's a misnomer. Jesus was born just like anybody else. It's the virgin conception that um, as God spoke and the universe was created, that's really what happened, I believe, in Mary's womb. There's a great uh, medieval painting that shows Mary and Gabriel, Gabriel with the Annunciation announcing to her, you're going to bear the Messiah. And then there's a dove flying into Mary's ear. That is great theology. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's the ear, the word God creates by speaking. So it's the word. And this virgin conception happens. That's the miracle, not the virgin birth. It's the virgin conception. And uh, anyway, they're gathered around listening to the God the Father lay out the plan. And one of the heavenly hosts turns to the Father and says, but what if he doesn't do it right? What's plan B? And God the Father says, there is no plan B. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for who you are, for your unconditional love for us. You've loved us so much that you really would rather die than live without us. This Christmas, bring home that truth to us and to everybody in our family so that we might truly celebrate uh, the grand miracle of you taking on human flesh. And we thank you that because of that, we have an eternal destiny sealed by your Son. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, next week we're going to bring your Bibles, next three Sundays, because we're going to look at, uh, next Sunday we'll take a look at some Old Testament foreshadowings of the Incarnation. You'll see that Incarnation is all through the Old Testament. Sunday after that we're going to look at some possible pre-Incarnation appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Did that happen? Let's take a look and see. The Peace Della Restance is December 19th. I'm going to open your eyes to something you've probably never thought of before, um, the eternalness of the Incarnation. God bless.